Welcome to another episode of PEM Currents, the Pediatric Emergency Medicine Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Brad Soboleski, and today we're going to be talking about swimmer's ear, otherwise known as otitis externa. Before I dive into the topic and wade through some of the details, I will let you know that this is a seemingly minor complaint that gets a lot of traction in the summer, so it's wise to know about some of the important therapies and also how to counsel patients. Now, external otitis, otitis externa, also known as swimmer's ear, refers to inflammation of the external auditory canal. This can be infectious, allergic, or dermatologic, but most often it's caused due to the overgrowth of bacteria in the canal itself. It's most common between the ages of 5 and 14 years. And you've probably heard this before, but the ear is a self-cleaning organ. You don't stick anything bigger than your elbow into it, and it cleans itself out. And that's generally because cerumen and the hair cells migrate outward. Why do you get swimmer's ear? Well, it starts with the breakdown of the skin cerumen barrier. This inflammation and edema of the skin then leads to pruritus and obstruction, perhaps from scratching. Um, the quality and the amount of cerumen is impaired. Now, cerumen is normally acidic, and this does not facilitate growth of bacteria. When you don't have enough earwax, epithelial migration is impacted, the pH becomes more alkalotic, and this warm, moist environment is like a hot tub for bacteria. Risk factors for otitis externa include, well, obviously swimming, so excess moisture in the canal leads to skin maceration and breakdown of that skin cerumen barrier, again, creating that alkalotic soup. It changes the microflora of the ear canal to predominantly gram-negative bacteria. Trauma is a risk factor as well, so excessive cleaning, you know, a retained piece of a cotton swab can say, serve as a nidus for infection, or you can scratch the canal disrupting the barrier. Devices that exclude the ear canal can also set you up for otitis externa, like earplugs, hearing aids, earbuds, etc. Patients with allergic or atopic contact dermatitis of the ear also have a setup for swimmer's ear. Now, the most common symptoms of external otitis are pain, pruritus, discharge, and hearing loss. Tenderness over the tragus or when the auricle is manipulated or pulled are indicative findings of external otitis, though they may be absent in more mild cases. On otoscopy, the ear canal usually appears edematous and erythematous in external otitis. You'll see a mix of debris and cerumen, and it can be yellow, brown, white, or gray. The tympanic membrane may be erythematous and external otitis and only partially visible due to canal edema, but it's very important to get a good look. So if you've got an air fluid level along the TM or you have a bullous effusion, then you've got a middle ear effusion and underlying otitis media. You should also question the diagnosis of external otitis with otorrhea when the patient has a perforated TM, because it's probably more likely that the fluid is draining from the middle ear rather than from being in the external canal itself. Now, external otitis is classified in terms of mild, moderate, and severe. Mild is minor discomfort in pruritus, minimal canal edema. Moderate otitis externa has an intermediate degree of pain in pruritus, and the canal is partially occluded. And finally, severe external otitis has intense pain and the canal is completely occluded. You will also see periauricular erythema, lymphadenopathy, and fever. Treatment of swimmer's ear depends on the severity. 
And it begins with cleaning the canal, oral toilet, which I just think is kind of fun to say. This is the removal of cerumen, desquamated skin, and purulent material. This facilitates healing and enhances penetration of eardrops. This should be done under direct visualization with an otoscope using a wire loop or cotton swab to remove cerumen and debris. If the eardrum is intact, you can irrigate with a 1 to 1 dilution of 3% hydrogen peroxide with warm water. Generally, water at body temperature is great because you're not trying to do cold water calorics. If you have a ruptured tympanic membrane, or if you can't see the drum itself and treatment is proceeding well, then ENT can help with the oral toilet and cleaning out the canal. And in my personal experience, this is the part of management of external otitis that is most often not done, either due to fear from causing more discomfort from the patient or just generally not knowing that this is a good idea. Now, topical treatments are the mainstay of therapy. In cases that are very mild, you may consider not even using antibiotics, but you better have a good discussion with the family because if they have experienced external otitis before, they may be conditioned to expect antibiotic eardrops. So instead, a topical preparation with a combination of acetic acid and hydrocortisone will lead to symptom resolution, the anti-inflammatory effect of the steroid. And then again, remember that the ear canal has a normally acidic milieu. This can provide treatment for a number of patients. Now, if a patient is not going to go home without getting antibiotic drops, fine. That's okay, too. In moderate otitis externa, you'll want a topical combination that contains an antibiotic and a glucocorticoid. You definitely want to cover Staphylococcus aureus and Pseudomonas aeruginosa, which are the two main bacteria. Two options that are most commonly used include ciprofloxacin and hydrocortisone, which cost more but has fewer side effects, and the combination of neomycin, polymyxin, and hydrocortisone. You want to avoid aminoglycosides when you don't know if the tympanic membrane is intact, and generally pick one of those two agents. The ciprofloxacin hydrocortisone is a great combo. It's commercially available as Ciprodex. For severe disease, topical therapy, wick placement, and if there's evidence of deep tissue infection, oral antibiotics. The wick is placed into the canal and then taken out and replaced with a new wick every one to three days if significant swelling persists. Once the ear canal swelling subsides, you can discontinue wick placement. Any patient that's had a wick placed needs prompt follow-up either with a primary care doctor or ear, nose, and throat. Now, a systematic review and a random effects meta-analysis of some randomized control trials looked at topical antimicrobials versus other treatments with and without steroids and focused on an assessment of absolute clinical cure rates. Now, the main caveat is that there are not many very well-done trials, but overall, antibiotics are better than not, and the combination of antibiotics and steroids probably lead to improved symptoms more often than just antibiotics alone or no drops whatsoever. Pooled effects of this systematic review showed that topical antimicrobials increased absolute clinical cure rates over placebo by 46%, and bacteriologic cure rates by 61%. Steroid plus antibiotic was about 20% more effective than steroid alone, and quinolone drops increased bacteriologic cure rates by about 8% versus non-quinolone antibiotics. And though we may be worried about fluoroquinolone resistance in other parts of the body, studies have not shown higher rates of fluoroquinolone resistance for otitis externa. 
A typical regimen for eardrops would be twice daily in the affected ear for seven days. And this is for mild to moderate disease. For severe otitis externa, you want to treat for seven to 14 days. Instruct patients and caregivers to lie on the side opposite the affected ear and then place the eardrops in the canal. You want to maintain that position for at least 20 minutes or place a cotton ball in the ear canal for 20 minutes to make sure that the medicine doesn't drain out. Once the drops are in, you can use the tragus as a little plunger to push them in. Definitely finish the entire course of treatment even if patients begin to feel better. For patients that have severe disease, an oral antibiotic, most appropriately from the quinolone class, is prescribed for 7 to 10 days. For pain control, well, if the drum was intact, topical treatment was effective, but in the United States, the FDA has discontinued agents like Araugan. So we are left with acetaminophen, ibuprofen, and warm compresses. Options for severe disease include opioids. Now, many patients will come in, even after a couple days of treatment, complaining of severe pain. But if you don't feel that clinically they have severe disease, you just have to talk to them about expectations. It's usually not possible to eliminate pain completely, but it will get better, most often within two to three days maximally. The vast majority of patients will have full symptom resolution by about six days. And I know that's frustrating, but expectations go a long way in helping patients understand what's going to happen next. Now, there are some notable complications of otitis externa that you should be aware of. Periauricular cellulitis includes erythema, edema, and warmth of the skin around the auricle. Patients can have fever as well. This is a criteria definitely for starting oral antibiotics in addition to drops. Malignant external otitis is fortunately rare. This is basically necrotizing external otitis. It sounds bad and it's potentially fatal because the infection spreads beyond the ear into the temporal region, through the bone and marrow spaces, and into the brain. And as you'd imagine, if it gets into the brain or if you have signs of systemic disease, this is a bad prognostic factor. Now, our culture is helpful. If there's some goop to drain, you can culture it, right? Well, generally, just starting therapy for especially moderate cases and many mild cases is cheap and effective. The culture costs money, and it's probably not going to lead to information that will help a kid that will respond anyway. But in cases of severe and recurrent external otitis, if it's chronic, if you have an immunosuppressed patient, you know, somebody who's post-transplant, um, HIV, getting chemotherapy, um, or infections in patients after some sort of ear surgery, it's helpful to get a culture. And this is done just with a standard cotton swab per your hospital's usual protocols. You should also instruct patients to protect their ear from water. When they're bathing, put a cotton ball coated with petroleum jelly in the ear canal uh, while treatment is ongoing. Don't swim for 7 to 10 days. And if they really have to get back in the pool because they're a competitive swimmer, 2 to 3 days with earplugs. And definitely tell them not to use earbuds on their personal audio device, even if they're listening to a pediatric emergency medicine podcast, for about 7 to 10 days. And as I noted earlier, most patients will start to feel better within 36 to 48 hours and feel completely fine by about five to six days. Mild patients only need to return for follow-up if symptoms persist or worsen beyond the first week. Moderate follow-up is recommended at one to two weeks. Severe should definitely be seen within two to three days. 
Cases that fail to get better within two to three days and especially within a week despite antimicrobial therapy should be seen by ENT who will be able to do a better debridement of the canal and assess for spread beyond the ear canal itself and for diagnoses such as otomycosis, which is a fungal infection of the ear canal. All right, so that's all I've got for otitis externa, a.k.a. swimmer's ear. Now, let's be honest. This seems like a relatively minor problem, but it represents a large number of visits to urgent cares and even emergency departments in the summer months. I would recommend that you consider doing some debridement of the ear canal before prescribing therapy, and in very mild cases, consider not going with an antibiotic. Parents may not be as resistant to it as you think. Please check out PEMblog.com for more great educational content. And you can follow me on Twitter at PEMtweets. Leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your audio content. I'd really appreciate the feedback. Until next time, this has been Brad Soboleski for PEM Currents, the Pediatric Emergency Medicine Podcast.